Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I'm not sure whose idea it was to put that sign up there anyway. But I guess it just happens, right? And not only that, Big Brother's always watching. I think that camera's the one that got me over there, so just be mindful of that. So, but of course, we all need to work on humility. That's what this is all about. We're constantly reminded of it. It's kind of the nature of humility. It's one of those things that um, the moment you think you have it, by definition, it's gone. And that's why, if you notice, it's been lowered again today. So we just keep lowering it, lowering it. We have to keep reminding ourselves of the importance of humility in our lives. Um, and that's kind of been the whole theme of everything we've been talking about um, throughout this whole season, um, is humbling ourselves and preparing our hearts for the arrival of Christ, because we learn some really important things um, as we've been studying the Magnificent, and in particular, that God comes to the humble. That's such an important lesson for us to remember. God comes to the humble. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, we're working our way through the Magnificent, as um, Cammie just read for us. It's a song that Mary composed and sung um, alongside her cousin Elizabeth shortly after she learned from the angel Gabriel that she would give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And in it, Mary affirms this truth that we see all throughout Scripture, that God especially prizes this characteristic of humility. As Isaiah 66 records, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. We just simply don't find instances in Scripture where God's kingdom prospers those who are proud. In fact, God's Son came to dwell in humility. If you think about it, Jesus is alongside God in heaven. He's deity status, and he sets that aside to come down, still fully God, but sets that aside to come down and take on the body of a man. And he does that in the everyday ordinary of God's creation. Sometimes the obsession that the world has with the extraordinary, with the spectacular, it causes us to lose interest in the ordinary. But God has never lost interest in the ordinary. He created it that way. And it's truly magnificent in its simplicity, especially when you consider that Jesus didn't come to the spectacular. He didn't come to the extraordinary. He didn't come to the religious authorities, to the governing officials, to the wealthy, or people of status. He came on an ordinary night in an ordinary town to an ordinary peasant woman in an ordinary barn visited by ordinary shepherds. It was a humble arrival for an extraordinary Messiah who came to usher in his extraordinary kingdom. And in so doing, he would flip our world upside down in what's often referred to as the great reversal, where the first are last and the last are first, where the proud are scattered and the humble exalted. And today we study Mary's closing lines where she sings of a key aspect of this great reversal, and that is that God is faithful. Mary concludes by singing of how God remembers his promises to extend mercy to his adopted children. She sings these closing lines. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance 
of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And what a way to end this song that's all about the great reversal by singing of God's faithfulness to do it. Because at the end of our lives, when we stand before Almighty God on that final day of judgment, what will ultimately matter is God's faithfulness to his promises. When it's all said and done, it won't matter one bit what we did. All that will matter is what God did in his mercy for his children, faithful to his promises. So it's only fitting that Mary should end her song this way. And so as always, let's break this passage down bit by bit. Mary begins, he has helped his servant Israel. Now why is this such an important point? Well, because the word servant speaks to our position as it relates to God. The meaning of the word that was used in the original language is somewhat different from how we use it today. The original word is pahis, and it means two things. First, a child, and then second, one who attends to his or her master. So the first part of being a servant of God, a child, clearly speaks to our position as God's adopted children. We talk about that all the time. And then the second part teaches us that God's children are to attend to their master or their father. So let's make sure we're clear about who these servants are that Mary refers to. Well, back in verse 48, Mary referred to herself this way. She sang, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, referring to herself. So she clearly identifies herself as a child of God who attends to her father. And then now we see here that Mary also sings of Israel's position as a servant. She sings he has helped his servant Israel. You see, Israel was God's chosen nation. That's how they were referred to throughout the whole Testament, children of a God who attended to him. And as we've also learned, it's a song to be sung by us too, because if we've placed our faith in Jesus, then we are also God's adopted children, and therefore we're fellow servants. That's what we've been studying all throughout this book of Ephesians throughout the fall. So given this description of what it means to be a servant of God, we mustn't think of ourselves as people who are oppressed by their master, by sort of grudgingly having to submit to him. Rather, as servants, we are a child of the master. Like Mary and like Israel, we're members of his family. We're heirs to his kingdom, attending to him as our dear father. And the next, Mary turns once again to Israel's history, and she keeps doing this over and over again throughout the song. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So God remembers how he promised Abraham that he would show mercy to his descendants. And Mary already sang about God's mercy earlier in her song. And when we studied that a few weeks ago, we learned that mercy means kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted with the desire to help them. You see, mercy is one of God's attributes. It's one of his characteristics. He desires to help his children 
in their affliction and in their misery. And why is it that we're all so miserable? Well, it's always because of sin, because of rebellion against God, because we don't want to play the game of life the way God designed it to be played for his glory, because we lack humility. We want to play it instead for our glory, and so we sin, and all sin leads to suffering. It leads to misery. It leads to affliction. But because our God remembers his promises to be merciful, he actually helps us out. And we can see it most clearly whenever we look back. And that's why Mary mentions Abraham. It's a nod to God's covenants. You see, God is faithful in showing mercy in fulfillment of his covenants or his promises that he makes with his people. And as we said last week, back in those days, there weren't a whole bunch of scripture and Bible floating around. You went to the temple, you heard it read to you, and you memorized it. And so Mary clearly knows her scripture. She knows what the psalmist sings of when he wrote, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Or as the prophet Micah wrote, you will show faithfulness and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So what the psalmist, what Micah, and what Mary are all referring to is how God is faithful to the promises that he makes. And while there are numerous promises recorded throughout Scripture, five major covenants seem to emerge. We've been talking about them the last couple of weeks. These are promises God made that the nation Israel actually relied on especially when they found themselves at the end of the rope. They were promises that impacted their lives in profound ways through all of life's ups and downs. It's why they followed Moses out of Egypt and into the desert, because they trusted God's promises. They'd placed their hope in their loving Father. It's also why they followed Joshua conquering their enemies to secure the promised land because they trusted God's promises. Their hope was in him. They uprooted their families. They lived in a constant state of threat. They had enemies on all sides. They even endured exile, and through it all, they kept their hope in their loving Father. And when we remember that God is faithful to his promises, it should give us hope too in the face of all of our affliction and misery. And we all need hope. It's absolutely vital to our existence, and it lies at the heart of what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus' arrival is the hope of the ages, the long-awaited Messiah, the King who came to usher in his kingdom, a kingdom where God's mercy reigns, where the afflicted find relief, where the humble are exalted, where our hope is actually realized. So we're going to briefly visit each of these five major covenants to remind ourselves of how faithful God is and how he always fulfills his promises. And so perhaps it might help us in our outlook on life, especially this Christmas time, that it might be radiant with hope. So in the beginning, God sets Adam and Eve apart, giving them dominion over much of his creation. But of course, after giving into temptation, they rebel. It's called the great fall, and sin enters the world 
and separates mankind from God. It's why we now experience all those valleys you see up there on that graphic. Our lives are forever marked by ups and downs of life, where we have those scars that we live with, that we get from those valleys. And as we've talked, those scars come from sin. They come from either our sin, they come from the sins of those around us, they come from generations before us, sins of our fathers, and they come from the original sin. In fact, we know that all of creation is cursed because of it. That's why we see things like natural disasters and diseases like that out there. And that's why we see that all of creation groans. And that is exactly how we arrive at this first major covenant God makes with Noah. And of course, it's a very familiar story to all of us. God was fed up with man's sin, and he sends a flood to wipe it out. But God once again sets apart his people. He preserves Noah, his family, and two of each creature. And after the water subside, here is the promise God makes with Noah. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God has been true to his promise. About a thousand years later, God makes his second major covenant with Abraham, the one Mary specifically alludes to in her song. God says to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now Abraham is often referred to as the father of the nation Israel, because this is how it all started. This was God, once again, setting apart his people, this nation Israel, as his adopted children. And we see here how Abraham believed God. He trusted that God would be faithful to his word. And God not only promised to make Abraham a great nation, but also to give him this land called the promised land in Canaan. Another 500 years or so pass, Israel's prospering and they're actually growing, but they're enslaved by Egypt. So God calls Moses to liberate Israel, leading them into the promised land. And during those 40 years in the desert, God makes a third covenant, this time directly with the nation Israel through Moses. God says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now notice in this covenant, God requires Israel to obey his voice and to keep this covenant. So under this law covenant, Israel had responsibility to uphold their end of the deal. If you obey my voice is the condition. Of course, things go sideways again. They're a stiff-necked and rebellious people just like us. They seek their own glory, not God's. But even still, God is faithful to his side of the covenant. And he eventually delivers them into the land that he promised. And he even gives them judges to lead them. But remaining consistent with their sinful ways, Israel continues to rebel. They want a king. They don't want to be set apart. 
They want to live like just the other nations live. So God eventually appoints Saul as their king. But he disobeys God too. So God removes him and makes David the new king. But even David, who is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, he rebels too. As we're very familiar with that story, we studied it back in Lent. David makes some pretty bad decisions. He has an adulterous affair. He then sends the husband of this lady he has the affair with to the front lines where he's murdered. And his family pays a tremendous price for this. If you think about all that that implies for this, David was in a really bad position. And we studied last year how he repents. And when he repents, he asks God if he could build him a temple as part of this repentance. And although God refuses David's request to build him a temple, God makes his fourth major covenant with him. God promises, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then David responds, for you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So God promises to send the Messiah through a descendant of David, a king who'd reign forever. And of course, Mary is a descendant of David, and she gives birth to the eternal king in fulfillment of this promise. It's why she's called blessed. Now, I know sometimes people bristle at that. That description of her can be a little frustrating sometimes, but it actually comes straight from this particular covenant. It's just part of the covenant that God made with David. She's a member of the house of David, a servant of Almighty God, and her name shall be called blessed forever. But then, approximately 300 years and some 30 or so kings later, after God made this covenant with David, Israel hits rock bottom in their rebellion, and God gives them over to exile at the hands of the Syrians and the Babylonians. And during the exile, though, the prophets, they begin to make noise about a fifth covenant, a new covenant, unlike all the others. And Jeremiah captures it well. He records, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the covenant that lays out the work of the coming Messiah that God had promised through David. Do you see how all these covenants, all this covenant stuff hangs together? Even the law that had, given, had been given to Moses from God would now be written on the hearts of God's people. God promises right here to be our God, and we are to be his people, servants who are children attending to their master. And it says that none of his children will be left out. They will all know him from the least of them to the greatest. And God will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Notice, too, how in this covenant, there isn't any condition on our part. As much as we like to make a condition, as much as we like to work our way into heaven, there's no condition. This is not like the covenant made with Moses. This one is all God. It's all from him, through him, and to him. God will save his people. He promises, 
right here in this new covenant. And he does it all by the strength of his arm, as we learned last week. And that's why grace is such an amazing thing. It's unmerited favor. Nothing we ever did to deserve it. And we play absolutely no part in it. It's the gospel message. It's what changes absolutely everything. It's why Mary sings what she sings of. Because this event, the Messiah's arrival, ushers in this new covenant. It's the single greatest inflection point of all time. Not only is it a shift from B.C. to A.D., but the great reversal is now in full effect. God fills the hungry, those who humbly depend on him, with good things. And the rich, representing those who tend to depend on themselves, he sends them away empty. That's just how things operate in God's kingdom. And notably, the long-awaited king, he doesn't come the way Israel expected, as a conquering hero. i say it again. He came on an ordinary night in an ordinary town to an ordinary peasant woman in an ordinary barn visited by ordinary shepherds. God's son came in humility, stepping down from heaven to take on the bodily form of a frail and finite man, becoming one of us so he could dwell with us. And what an amazing gift this is for us to celebrate at Christmas, because our salvation ultimately hangs on the reality of his resurrected human body. And of course, in our everyday ordinary life, there's still going to be plenty of those ups and downs, those highs and lows under the new covenant like we see up there. But we now have hope because the new covenant has been sealed by Christ's blood that he shed on the cross. God's promise to forgive our sins as his adopted children and to remember them no more. It's all been fulfilled. It's the greatest gift of all time, and it's the truth of what we celebrate at Christmas. It's why we simply must look past the commercialism of Christmas, the tinsel and the trees. And I know many of you have asked, how come we don't have trees up here? I'm not against trees. I'm not a tree hater. I got to treat my house. That's not why we don't have trees up here. We don't have trees up here because that's the whole point of this sermon series. No trees. No extraordinary materialism of the holiday season. Nothing but the ordinary, the humble, so that we might focus on this pivotal truth that God comes to the humble. He's faithful, and he will do it. Mm -hmm.